Today, we're talking to Greg from Entrust about post-quantum cryptography. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. Greg. Hey, Joel. How are you? Good. So I am really curious when I saw the opportunity for this conversation, uh, I saw something that I had never seen before, and it was called post-quantum cryptography. Now, I understand quantum, I understand cryptography, but I don't understand what the deal is with post-quantum cryptography. Well, I think the starting point there is is quantum computers, first of all. So a, a quantum computer is a fundamentally different computing mechanism than what we're used to today. So com- compared to the chip in your laptop or the chips in your phone or the computer chips and almost everything. A quantum computer works on totally different physical principles, quantum mechanics, and it encodes information in a different way called qubits. And a quantum computer, it turns out, is going to be really good at solving certain kinds of problems, much faster potentially than classical computers can today. And so some of the excitement around quantum computers is their ability to uh, advance research in you know, chemical systems, material science, pharma, uh, biopharma, because they're really good at simulating physical systems. Turns out, though, one of the things quantum computers can do, and we've, we've proven that they can do that, is break the public key cryptography that underlies the, just about everything you do today online. Uh, secure transactions on the internet and the security mechanisms built in almost every connected device. Uh, and so uh, cryptographers have understood this now for a number of years and have been working on what we call post-quantum cryptography or quantum-safe cryptography. And that's uh, really looking to address this problem that will come from a scaled quantum computer to be able to break today's public key crypto systems. Quantum-safe cryptography is going to be safe from attack from a quantum computer, but also from a classical computer. Uh, And it's going to require us effectively to transition all of the security mechanisms that are based on public key cryptography today to new crypto systems, quantum safe crypto systems. So I actually understand it a little bit better now. Thank you. I've had a conversation with the C- the creator of Ripple, the cryptocurrency, and we touched lightly on this about a year or so ago. So it's a little bit fuzzy for me. But I asked him this exact question about the quantum computers breaking. And he said, <clears throat> yes, and that it's really far away but they're working on quantum safe algorithms and they can switch it if they needed to switch it sooner. They could switch it pretty quickly. But that the reason why they don't switch to it directly right now is because they're slower than the non-safe, than the unsafe ones. So, so first of all, we need to be careful. You brought up cryptocurrency. So cryptography and cryptocurrency are certainly two different things. Cryptocurrencies are based on some very sophisticated, secure cryptographic mechanisms. But cryptography is a much more generally applied security mechanism. So it's everything you do on the internet through your browser, you know, all the security mechanisms built into your operating system or your mobile phone, for the most part, have cryptographic systems in them. And most most of that also uses public key crypto, which is the, the system that we're concerned with here. So touching on a couple of the other things you brought to the discussion, we don't have, so the, the research in the Quantum computers is advancing quickly, but there isn't a quantum computer yet that's scaled to the size and speed required to break today's crypto systems. So it's a bit of a, a prediction to, to, to say, when will this happen? And most experts think it's in the seven to 10 year time horizon where a 
quantum computer is going to be large enough and fast enough to be able to actually affect the cybersecurity of our connected devices and systems today. But the, I think what, what we've learned from past crypto transitions, we've done this before, you know, that cryptography evolves over time. Um, you know, mathematicians and scientists find defects in these algorithms and we have to change them over time. And we've done, so we have done this before. For instance, we've moved from SHA-1 to SHA-2 hashing algorithms over the last few years. We've changed from RSA public key crypto in some places to elliptic curve. One of the things we've learned from that, those transitions is they're time-consuming, they're expensive, they're difficult for organizations to manage, and legacy systems often get stuck in these old security mechanisms and it's really difficult to change them. So this transition to quantum safe we sort of have to learn, learn from our past here and understand it's going to take some time. Starting now, taking some actions now to prepare an organization is really important. So that's one comment that sort of addresses the time horizon. You know, we know this is going to take a long, a long time. It's going to be difficult for organizations. We can't predict exactly when it will happen. You know, is it two years away? Probably not, but it could be. Is it five, seven you know, that's, that's what the experts are, are thinking right now. You also talked about performance, and that goes into the sort of impact of this transition as well. Uh, Quantum-safe cryptographic algorithms do perform differently. Keys are larger. Um, the algorithms take more time to execute. Message sizes are larger. And that goes to sort of my earlier comment that this transition could be difficult, will we'll impact the systems as they exist today, and sort of understanding, testing, being able to make that migration over time uh, is really important. It, it calls for action now, really. So I'd like some clarity. So we talked a little bit about the speed and performance and ability to crack on the cryptocurrency side. For the public key, we are there yet. We're, we're, it's not, I thought you said earlier that we've already been able to crack the public key. So we are able to do that aspect. We're just not able to crack a specific currency. No, that, that's not quite right. So what, what mathematicians, mathematicians have done, they've discovered a mathematical algorithm. It's called Shor's algorithm, and it can run on a quantum computer. And so we know mathematically that a quantum computer that's big enough and can run Shor's algorithm it will be able to crack public key crypto. But we're waiting for that, what we call a scaled quantum computer. We're waiting for that quantum computer to exist, to be you know, discovered and realized uh, before that's going to happen. And that's, well, that's what really is that seven to 10 year time horizon. We're seeing these advancements in quantum computing almost every month, but the state of the art today are quite small quantum computers that are not powerful enough, not large enough or fast enough to actually break the security mechanisms that we're talking about. Are there any computers that can that, that are quantum computers that can break any types of encryption, SHA-1, SHA-2, RSA, elliptic, any of those? So today's state-of-the-art public key crypto, you talked about hashing algorithms, SHA-1 and SHA-2, or public key crypto, RSA and elliptic curve. You know, when you're using best practice sizes and implementations of that crypto. It, today is safe. Uh, cannot be broken by today's classical computers. Cannot be broken by today's quantum computers because they're, they're small. Okay. 
or not not large enough. So we don't need to freak out. So, yeah, so it's, <laughs> yeah, no it's not tomorrow, but th there is a real call to action here because this is coming. It's a, in my opinion, an inevitable consequence that you know when you look every if you're watching the research every month, Microsoft or IBM or Google, some of the biggest most capable technology companies in the world are announcing further advancement in quantum computers. You can bet that some of the largest governments, China, United States, are working on this too. So my point of view is it's these are well-funded organizations. They're motivated to build these quantum computers because of the opportunity to, to do amazing things. The cybersecurity consequence just kind of tags along with that. Um, so this is going to happen. Organizations have to start thinking about the transition. But you're right to say, you know, this isn't a tomorrow, but it is a, it is the time is now to start thinking about planning for, understanding the journey from where we are today to where we need to get to. So quick background about me. So I was a software engineer for 17 years and I started the show. Then the show became my full-time job. So I haven't been actively writing code the past three years. A year and a half to two years ago, I did a special series, three or four episodes on trying to understand quantum. So I went onto YouTube, I found red versus blue or something like that, uh, learned some of the basics about it, had the head of quantum at Honeywell come on, had Robert Suter who wrote Dancing with Qubits, he's the head over at IBM come on and talked about the state of this quantum computing because when you see an emergent technology and everyone's talking about it and there's tons of money, you can't not go pay attention to it. Everything in this environment has the ability to knock an industry out overnight. So I'm curious, you don't manufacture the computers, right? Are you writing books on them? No, no, we're a cybersecurity company and we are, uh, we are building the security infrastructure that's going to allow uh, our customers and organizations all over the world to remain safe, to be able to make this transition from today's classic public key crypto systems to tomorrow's quantum safe crypto system. So companies are budgeting for that in 2023. They are starting. Um, there is there's some regulatory and, and compliance signals to tell, tell customers that the time is now to start. Um, the NSA released security guidelines in September 2022. The U.S. passed a uh, Cybersecurity Preparedness Act in December 2022 that called for all U.S. federal agencies to start preparing. Etsy and BSI's standards organizations in Europe are talking about organizations needing to make this make this transition. So there's starting to be a real discussion in the in the in the industry. Analysts are starting to follow this and and publish guidelines. You know, the call to action is the right way to think about this. This. This discontinuity, so to speak, is coming as quantum computers get larger and faster and organizations need to prepare their security mechanisms as a result of that. It's funny because you don't usually see the government lead on topics. So if you see the government leading on the security topic, I'm curious if maybe in their own private programs, they're starting to get really, really close or they've already done it. Well, it's such a... Uh, a tantal tantalizing capability if you're an intelligence organization or a or a national level entity to be able to watch and listen to the world's secure communications. And so yeah, you can bet the United States and China and many governments around the world are investing heavily 
to attain that capability. And so walk me through this process, right? Let's say I'm sufficiently concerned and it's on my radar for 2023, 20, 24. As a business, how is this impacting me? Is it in my development teams? Is it in my internal IT infrastructure? It's, I mean, cryptography touches everything. So where do you even start? You're certainly right about that. You're, you're going to find, or organizations find that public key crypto literally is everywhere in their, um, in their infrastructure. It's in the applications they build. It's in the systems they deploy. And so really that, that is the starting point. We, we talk about the journey from where you are today to where you need to be. Uh, and it's, it's pretty straightforward. I think the first step for organizations is to, to create a team. We, we call it a cryptographic center of excellence. You could call it whatever you want. You need to create a group who's responsible for uh, managing the cryptographic assets of the organization. And once you've got some, some people who are responsible, then they can start down this, this path. The next step we talk about to our customers is understand the data that's in your organization. And it's really the most secure, most sensitive, most important data gives you that sort of map on where to start. And the next step after that is really understand the cryptographic assets, inventory your keys and certificates and secrets and crypto algorithms that are being used in your organization. And there's some great tools and capabilities in the market. We build some of those that can go out and inventory all of that, really give you visibility to the scope of this issue. Then we talk to our customers about, you know, build a strategy, build maturity in how you um, manage those cryptographic assets. Really what you want to build into your organization is what we call cryptographic agility. The ability to change the algorithms and keys and certificates that are being used underneath all of these systems in a way that's automated and orchestrated and policy driven and not require a whole bunch of people to go out and make error prone changes. And then ultimately, once you have built that level of maturity to manage your cryptographic assets, you need to test and migrate some of the operationalize this transition to quantum safe. What does that migration actually look like in execution? So it, it really depends on how mature... We can, we can pick one, yeah. like we can pick one, sure. all right, let's say a GitHub repo type deal, maybe my code repository situation. What would the transition actually look like if I wanted to move from uh, one to another? So we'll, we talk about cryptographic agility and that's really the end state we're looking for. And so if I was talking to a development team or development organization, I'd be talking to them about you need to externalize the implementation of your, your crypto, make it policy or configuration driven. So it's not hard coded in your code that I am creating an RSA key and I'm using it to, to open a TLS connection, that, that those mechanisms are driven by configuration and basically allowing you, once that application is deployed, to you know, change your configuration to say, I want quantum safe keys in this TLS connection. Um, that's sort of the, the nuts and bolts details of it. And so that, that ultimately probably requires applications to change, operating systems and infrastructure to change, because um, a lot of that today is hard-coded and isn't crypto, crypto agile, as we, we call it. So there's, there's real meaningful amounts of work to do. And that's, again, that we go back to this call to action, that even though this uh, event where a uh, scaled quantum computer is, is suddenly... Uh, available, the preparedness, the transition is long and needs to, we need to start working on this now. Yes, especially at the larger companies, right? Because they do 
initiatives way far in advance and moving a giant ship is really tough especially when you think of the scale of you know walmart you're talking about ten thousands plus like tens of thousands of developers and all of the big big companies i've got a couple more specific questions i want to dive into also i'm not an expert here you can help correct me in my understandings and things like that i'd be appreciated of that do you have audit tools that you can unleash into my environments and you can tell me where this is happening? Static code analysis type tools. Yeah, that's a that's exactly what, what we're part of the capability that we have as a company and others do too. It's really inventorying your cryptographic assets, tools that can go out, scan your network, several, you know, open ports, make TLS handshakes, figure out what keys and algorithms are being used on all the network services. You know, look on your disks, look for key stores, look for cryptographic libraries deployed in all the different systems that are in your organization, and basically give you that inventory of your cryptographic assets, your, your certificates, your keys, your secrets, your cryptographic libraries or alg- algorithms like OpenSSL or uh, commercial cryptographic libraries or crypto libraries that are part of operating systems. That really gives you the visibility to what what do I have, what's being used in my organization. There are great tools that do that. Uh, and then that, that sort of first step then lets you, okay, let's build policy around this. Let's build automation and orchestration so that, you know, the starting with the very most important places in my organization that's touching the most valuable data that needs to be secure, that's where you go first. But it gives you this uh, roadmap, basically, to visualize the scope of the problem and start implementing policy and orchestration to be able to transition that to Fishbin. And where are we at in ease of ability to, to do this? Do you have, is the system to manage these keys? So you'll do an audit and then the system to manage them and permission them. That's what interest builds. That is part of what interest builds. We're also building cryptographic implementations and our security infrastructure, our PKI, for instance, our hardware security modules can issue quantum safe certificates, can create and manage quantum safe keys. So a lot of the security infrastructure required required today when you're operating uh, using public key crypto, that's our stuff. And tomorrow, as you're making that transition to post-quantum, our, our infrastructure can help you do that too. But sort of going back to the first part of your question, how easy is this? It's really a spectrum. And it's typical in an IT transition, any kind of technology transition. The most, the more modern, uh, the newer applications and systems have easier and better capability to automate and be crypto, cryptographically agile. The older legacy systems, you know, we are going to have this tale of legacy systems that are really hard to, hard to upgrade hard, hard to change. Um, we've seen this before and, and that long tail is going to be a, a work effort to get, to make this transition. Behavior change is hard. It's one of the hardest things in business and in engineering. There are still companies out there that don't test their code, right? Explain to me how you work with a company that wants to do this. You, you, you said the steps. I'm good with the steps. You create a team, you secure map data, you figure out where to start, you do inventory, you get to the level of maturity, you test and migrate. So I, I'm good. I'm good with that. But from a human standpoint, are you putting someone in, in their office 
Is it a situation where they have to have the drive and desire to push it forward and you're not completely handholding as consultants every step of the way? Describe how that works. Well, I think part of change in an organization has to be driven at the leadership level. Uh, and we're, we're starting to see post-quantum or quantum readiness being a board level and C-level discussion. We're just at the beginning of that. The, the education and the awareness is starting to build. You know, the big analyst companies are, are talking about it. We talked about organizations like the U.S. government, you know, publishing and, and making laws. That's sort of the beginning of this. And, and when, you're, when you have that leadership backing, when you have a board member asking a, a CISO the question of what, what are you going to do about quantum? Are you ready? Do you have a preparedness program in place? That's the start of this organizational change that you're talking about. And I think that's a really important piece to seeing this, this call to action start to be um, adopted in organizations. And then you talked about sort of the, the person who has their fingers on the keyboards. How, you know, how, do we, how do we help them? You know, I believe we're building some great technology that does make that person's job easier, makes it more about automating and setting policy and orchestrating and less about digging in and manually making changes in all of these systems. There's a big ecosystem piece to this as well. No IT system today really exists on its own. The operating system vendors and the networking equipment vendors and the application and the cloud services and all of this stuff has to work together. And the security infrastructure tends to be interoperable and standards-based. Uh, and we're still we're still pre-standards uh, in a lot of places for for quantum, but that stuff is rapidly coming. We're working with the IETF on standards. NIST just published the finalist algorithms, and that should be standardized over the next year. So we're right at the right time where um, technology companies are going to start adopting these new standards, and a, an IT analyst or a person whose job it is to manage these systems is going to start to have availability from their vendors capability that will allow them to make this transition. And how long has Entrust been around? Uh, Entrust as a company has been around for, for decades, since the 60s, to be quite honest. So many decades. As a cybersecurity company, we're 30 years old. So we've been doing public key crypto, for instance, since the, the 90s. We're one of the leaders in, the, uh, in this industry. And have a track record of, of innovating and, and really a lot keeping our customers safe for, for years and years. Now, obviously, we're here to talk about quantum readiness and, and post-quantum cryptography, but do you want to give a quick shout out for maybe some of the other lines of business that Entrust has? I don't know if we're prepared for that, but if, if you are, <laughs> rock and roll. Sure. So, so Entrust is a, a global technology company. We, we really help our customers secure their identities, their payments, and their digital infrastructure. So we spent sort of the, the bulk of this discussion talking about our customers' digital infrastructure, their, their systems and communication mechanisms and data security that underlies the, their IT estate. Um, but yeah, we, we build some, we have some great solution capabilities that a lot, whether it's digital identity or physical identity, um, whether it's the credit card or driver's license or passports you have in your wallet, or the digital identity that you use to log into your bank or your business or your VPN. We have great technology that uh, customers deploy all over the world to secure digital identities and payments. We're the largest provider of um, technology that allows us allows companies to create credit cards, payment cards, debit cards, whether those are physical or digital. 
So whether it's, you know, tap and pay with your phone or tap and pay with your card, um, we're one of the largest providers of the technology, that technology in the world. That is pretty cool. I saw on my notes that you guys have a lot of employees and I thought they clearly aren't just a startup that's trying to solve this quantum problem. And it's great to hear that you guys have been in the industry for, for that long. Why, why did you get into quantum readiness? Did, were you the one that spun it out and started this endeavor for the company or how did that work? Yeah, I don't, if we're, like you said, a big enough company, I don't think I could can take sole credit for that. We've been in the PKI, public key infrastructure business, for decades. And the threat from quantum computers is sort of very much uh, affects public key cryptography. So it sort of very much affects the core, one of the core security products that we provide to our customers. Um, so from sort of the beginning of the discussion about the impact of quantum computers on on public key crypto, we've been involved in thinking about, well, how does this affect our products? How does this affect our customers? Um, so we've been following this as a company for a number of years and investing on, in research ahead of that and are sort of, you know, I'm quite proud of the fact that we have a program in place today that has capabilities available to our customers today, even pre-standards, even sort of at the beginning of this journey, um, we're starting to help our customers with this transition. How long until we should expect standards to emerge well, uh, the four finalist algorithms were announced in June of 2022 by NIST, and they, they're talking about that standardization effort to take about a year uh, from June. So, uh, you know, I'm expecting in the next few months to see sort of standard official implementations of quantum safe algorithms for digital signature and for encryption. We're working with the IETF, that's a body that standardizes a lot of the protocols and messaging formats that we use on the internet. And so they're the body that holds a lot of the standards around PKI and other things. We're working with them. So that standards initiative is ongoing. I suspect that will be advancing over the next few months. So, I, you know, my suspicion is, or my prediction is that over the next year, we are going to see real adoptable, interoperable standards published in this space. And so the idea is we get ready, then the standards come out, but we already have some benefit just from the act of taking something that was fixed and essentially making it somewhat dynamic, right? Yeah, building that maturity so that you can make this transition, that's, we can start that work now. We have pre-standards implementations of a lot of the stuff, so organizations can uh, take that test, try, adopt, put them in their labs, proof of concept, prototype, whatever you want to uh, talk about, we can do that. And then there are some very specific use cases where people like the NSA have said, hey, you might want to think about doing this now, even before, before standardization. It's a couple of places that we talk to our customers about. One is if you're a device manufacturer and the, the uh, in-service life of that device is more than 10 years, think about connected IoT devices or uh, manufacturing or indus industrial controls or even your car. Thinking about quantum safe now, if that the in-service lifetime of that connected device is, you know, 10 years, you might want to be putting PQ in it today. The other use case we talk about is, is a threat we call harvest now, decrypt later. Think about all of the secure information that's traveling over networks today, over the internet or wide area networks. That stuff's probably encrypted, hopefully, but a sophisticated adversary could be scooping that up and saving it and waiting. You know, 10 years from now, that information may still have a heck of a lot of value to the 
bad actor who can then decrypt that with their, or break it with their quantum computer and access that confidential information. So there are some, some use cases today where customers are thinking about, okay, I need PQ now, even if though we're ahead of standards. And you know, we're supporting our customers thinking about that too. And how did you get involved with Entrust? I started at Entrust as a young software developer. Um, I've had a long career. I've been at Entrust now for over 20 years. Um, and I was, you know, we're talking about crypto. I was, that was one of the draws I had to Entrust as a, as a young software developer. I was interested in cybersecurity. I was interested in cryptography. And this was a company um, with a big engineering footprint in my, my, in Canada, where I, or Canadian, where I lived and where I was educated. Um, yeah, it was, I was interested in it now and still interested 20 years later. I want to talk a little bit about leadership and your journey, but first, what's the website? Entrust.com. That's easy. <laughs> I like it. Okay, so you've been at this company with them on this journey for 20 years. You started out early on your career. Now you're clearly leading teams and have an incredible amount of responsibility in the security space. How did you do it? Great question. Uh, and part of how I'll answer that is, is slightly, slightly different. Um, you know, why are you still here doing this? That's maybe a starting point. I'm still here doing this because I'm working with some of the smartest people I've ever met and we're building things that matter as an engineer. I think one the thing that really drives me at my core is building things that deliver meaningful value to our customers. Our customers are some of the biggest companies, banks, governments around the world, and they use our infrastructure to really make our lives better, make our financial transactions secure, make crossing borders secure, very meaningful contribution that Entrust makes to uh, the society. So that's what drives me as an engineer. And that's why I'm still here doing this. And that's sort of a roundabout way to say, well, how did I get here? It, It was, you know, starting with something I was really interested in. We talked about as a young engineer being interested in cybersecurity and crypto and, and getting a chance to do that and learn that uh, as a software developer in a tech company. But really, I just, it, it was, you know, became my passion, became my, my interest to learn more and more, learn more about my customers, learn more about our technology to the point where I was able to, to have more influence and, and accomplish more strategic things as my career progressed. Interesting working at Entrust. We were a you know pretty small company when I started. We were public at the time. We ended up being private. We ended up being acquired. Um, so it's kind of like I've worked for three or four different companies over time. And those those changes, you know, some people change com- the company they work for to get the next opportunity. But those ownership changes in the company was one of the things that really allowed me to extend my career experience, get new opportunities, work with different people, work on different product lines work with more customers. Um, and I think it's that varied experience, even though I've been at the same company for 20 years, I, I think that's that it's those changes that really allowed me to step into the next role, gain the next amount of experience and build my career. And there might be somebody out there that's leading a team that's going through a merger right now. And you've done it a couple times. How do you lead a team through a merger? What's the important thing to think about? It's a great, first of all, that transition is a great opportunity for a leader to build their, build their skills, learn something new, but also, you know, show off their profile, uh, to their, to the people who work for them and the people around them, the leaders around them and their managers and, and the strategic leaders in the company. 
Um, it, it is a difficult thing to take a, a team or a company uh, through an acquisition. There's always going to be differences in culture. There's going to be differences in strategy. There's a lot of change management. You know, change is hard. Engineers in particular are, particular, <laughs> are pretty change averse. You know, they like their comfort zone. And so as a leader, you can help take your team through those changes, manage through those changes. And I think you've got to go in with an open mind. Most companies, when they acquire someone, they're trying to get the best out of that organization and that company. They, they want you to bring to the table, you know, the things that you do really well, the aspects of your culture that you think are incredible or excellent. And so I took that approach that not sort of thinking that the company acquiring us was going to just kind of change us to their, you know, to their mold, so to speak, but that they, they were uh, bringing their best intention and they wanted to hear from us or from me, the best parts of what we brought to the table. And so that kind of mixing or melding of two company cultures, I think is what really results in a stronger, better, faster organization, uh, at the end or as you get through a merger. Yeah. And I really, I sort of took that to heart, adopted that mindset in my leadership style and sort of brought my teams through that transition point with that sort of in mind that, Hey, we, this organization wants us to be the best we can be. They want us to bring to them all of the things we do incredibly well and learn from them all the things they do well and build this kind of meld, meld these two cultures together. I always thought it was interesting. So I've never worked at a large company with thousands of employees and that got acquired or anything of that nature. But I have found it interesting doing all of these interviews and talking to people outside of the interviews, how there's a lot of fear when they're getting acquired. And I thought it was somewhat counterintuitive or at least interesting for me because as an entrepreneur, you know, the most important thing when merging these companies is culture because you need everybody to get along, have similar styles and be compatible. But also the acquirer typically is going to do everything they can to get the people to stay <laughs> because the last thing you want to do is acquire a company and have all the talent leave. Yeah, you're, you're definitely right. And we've, you know, we've done the opposite too. I, I've been the target of an acquisition and, and since Entrust was acquired in 2014, we've probably acquired four or five different companies. And as a technology leader working on an acquisition from the acquirer side, you know, we're evaluating, we're doing our due diligence, evaluating the technology and the products and the customers and how good is this stuff and how does it fit with our stuff. But, you know, one of the largest conversations we have as an acquirer is how do we keep these people effective and happy and, you know, how do we take them to the next level? How do we grow this? You know, and that really starts with the people. You, you can't grow and be successful unless you're your, the co your colleagues, your, your people are feeling empowered and included and part of the organization. And so we work really hard when we acquire a company to share that, to share our vision and to, to bring that team in and make sure they are, they're empowered to be successful. Your acquisition strategy, is it just as deals come about or do you actually have a team that's continuously looking for possible deals? How does that work? Yeah, the latter. We have right at the sea level of our company, a person responsible for our, our corporate strategy and acquisition is, is part of that. 
Oh, very cool. So that's a title. I didn't know that's something new I'm learning. So corporate strategy can be a title for people who are looking for potential acquisitions. Are there any titles? Do we see head of quantum security readiness? Have you seen any of those yet or is it a little bit too early? Yeah, I haven't. It, it, I think it's going to fall in the CISO um, part mm. of the organization uh, or CIO, you know, CTO. Those, the technology part of an organization is where this uh, initiative is going to sit. I do think quantum preparedness will be at board level. There will be board level visibility. It will be part of the discussion that happens at that level of a company and at, at the C level of a company. It's that important uh, and it's that impactful or, or comprehensive, this this journey from where we are today to where we need to get. So this is an important strategic item for um, all organizations to start thinking about. If you're advising a company that's, let's say, mid-market engineering type company, and they, their first question in the boardroom is, okay, we understand that we need to be quantum ready. How do we think about budget? Is it a percent of existing spend? How do you start to figure out what numbers would, would look like to do one of these endeavors? Yeah, so I, I think practically companies aren't quite there. Like we're right at the start of this. Most organizations today haven't allocated budget to this. And so there isn't a formula yet. But you know, we foresee that this is going to be at that level of discussion where we're, where companies are setting their IT and technology strategies that quantum preparedness will be part of their the spend profile for those companies. Well, it's the equivalent of removing every single lock in your city. Walk around and grab whatever you want if you're not ready for it. That's a good analogy. You know, public key crypto is under almost every security mechanism in an organization today. It's everywhere. Well, I, I can flush that out with your marketing team if you want. <laughs> this is fun, man. I've got one last final leadership question. I want you to think about one piece of leadership advice that you've heard. It can be unique or cliche, doesn't matter. But the important part is that you took this leadership advice, you put it into action and you remember it. Like it continuously comes up in your brain from time to time, a, a, you know, like a lesson or a principle that you've learned as a leader. Yeah. So, so the one that comes to my mind is, is be obsessed with delivering value to your customers. And what I mean by that is when you're faced with a decision, choose the path that's best aligned with the interest of your customers. And, you know, I've, it's amazing how the alignment with your customer's interest results in the best outcomes for the company, the best outcomes for its employees, the best outcomes for its shareholders. And for me, it's, it's almost easier to apply this data on those day-to-day decisions than maybe the big strategic ones. It's, do we take this, you know, more difficult path because I can deliver something better to my customers? Can we, do we fix this last problem or defect rather than release the software because of the impact it will have on my customers. You know, should we extend ourselves outside of our norm or our policy to help this customer? It's those on those day-to-day decisions that drive this obsessive alignment with customer value. Yeah, and I, I go back to it's, you know, I've very rarely taken that path and then regretted it after thinking, well, that actually didn't deliver the best outcome for the company or the employees or the shareholders, some another stakeholder. How did you learn that lesson? 
Well, he was a you know, mentor, um, manager that I worked for for a while, a great leader. Um, and, and that was one of his principles. Fantastic. Dude, we did it. We made a podcast. How do you feel? Feels great. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.